1 John 4.19, we love because he first loved us. The second portion is from John 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Okay, um, good to have uh, everybody out with us today. Uh, as has already been said, our visitors are especially welcome. Great to see the Mullinaxes here. I, mean, I know we have other visitors um, that I have a ch haven't had a chance to meet yet, but some of you we've said hello, which has been great to see you. So come back. We enjoy having you here very much. Um, over the past few weeks, we've been examining the idea of being sent like Jesus. It's our theme for the year, sent loving the world like God loved us. That, that comes from 1 John 4, 19, but it also comes from this prayer that Jesus prayed the night before his crucifixion, often been called the high priestly prayer. He's praying on behalf. He's interceding for his disciples, the disciples of his day, but also the disciples that would be made throughout the uh, ensuing centuries, which would include us, people who, who try to follow him. And one of the things he said in verse 18 of this prayer is he's praying to the Heavenly Father. He says, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So Jesus sends his disciples out into the world. And if we're truly to be his disciples, we must accept his charge of being a sent people, of actually being in the world, going into that world. And from uh, previous lessons in this little mini-series over the past few weeks, I know you guys were watching them on Zoom, so you might have been folding laundry while you were doing it. I don't know. I never have a real high confidence level when I'm preaching on Zoom that anybody is even there. Some of you, just a word on the screen. So um, I'm, I'm loving that we're back together today. But if you were able to pick up anything, glean anything from those lessons, you, you'll remember that we're to go into the world with servant love. We're to go into the world with compassion, uh, a, a, an empathic kind of uh, ability to, to feel the world's pain and to get behind its mistakes, get beyond that, and look at the reasons systemically. What's in the world? What kind of evil is out there? How has the world been derailed by Satan? And to see these people who are struggling with sin even as victims as much as perpetrators and to have that same sort of um, ability to suffer with them as Jesus our Lord did. That's going into the world. And also to try to understand that world. To try to speak God's truth, heaven's truth, in the earth's language. Come to people where they are. Which is certainly what Jesus did. Remember that God came to us in human form. And He came to us with human words. We have to go learn a special angelic language first. Or take on a different you know, form of existence. He came to us where we were. By these means, Jesus truly came into the world to be a bridge, if you will. A bridge between heaven and earth. Between the holiness of the divine and the sins of, of this world. He bridged the two and he calls us to do the same. Now, as we asked at the end of last week's lesson, my little teaser for this week's lesson. Um, what about the risks associated with that? Might going into the world not cause the world to rub off on us? 
Perhaps you were thinking things like this, asking these questions in your heart, in your mind. Couldn't engaging the world, speaking in its language, eating with its sinners, possibly compromise God's mission? And I believe these kinds of questions lie behind another of the key phrases in Jesus' prayer in John 17. And it's to that, that phrase, which appears two times in this prayer, that we're going to turn this morning. He says that his disciples, though they are to be in the world, he says they are not of the world. Two times he says that. Again in verse 16, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning in this next installment, our third in this little series called Sent Like Jesus from John 17. That we as his people, though we are sent out into the world, are not to become of the world. So what does this phrase say about our relationship with the world that Jesus is sending us into? That's what I want to back up and think about this morning. What is our relationship as followers of Jesus, as people sent like Jesus, what is our relationship to the world? How do we relate? How do we uh, conceive, conceptualize um, our relationship with the world? What are your notions in your head? Maybe we don't often unpack these, we don't think about them explicitly, but the way we interact with the world is, an, is stemming from, it's growing out of whatever kind of um, semi-coherent notion we're holding in our head and heart about what our basic relationship is supposed to be. And those can be all over the map actually, and they may or may not be very biblical. So I think we ought to think uh, kind of introspectively this morning together about what is our relationship as a sent people to the world into which we are sent. Now one danger is that we become like the world. We become like the world. We just reflect our surroundings. We blend into the world around us. And so one way that some people have, even sometimes in the name of going into the world and making the gospel relevant and all that, is that we become kind of like chameleons. Is that the right way to relate to the world? You know what a chameleon is, don't you? Chameleon. This can be very tempting to, to, to do, to think this way, because, I mean, think about it. Why do animals like chameleons change their color? I know they do it for several reasons, but sometimes it's to camouflage themselves against hostile creatures around them. They're predators out there that, that wake up in the morning thinking about how to eat them, how to find them and eat them. That's their job, right? Going off to hunt for some lizard meat, punch the clock. And the chameleon you know, can change, has this ability to change his colors, to blend into the world around him because it's dangerous. The world's dangerous. And I want to say the world has typically had a certain amount of hostility toward Christians, toward Christianity. Um, I honestly think, um, this is my historian hat now, that in American history, it's been actually way less than any place about on the planet. It, it, we'd be up there in the top. I know we have persecution complexes a lot. Um, we've had it easy in, in, the term, in terms of the history of humanity. Um, a lot of times, uh, awful things have been done by Christ nominal Christians in America, to Native Americans and African Americans and so on. With slavery, it was very much... Anyway, we won't go into all that. So I don't want us to develop some sort of martyr complex here. But when you boil it all down and, and you know, sort of... Uh, uh, kind of define out the, the, the verities of, of history and how things have changed. There is something fundamental about following Jesus that's going to put us at odds with this world. 
Jesus says as much. He says it right here in John 17. Um, if we can't relate to that point at all, then it's, it's, it's possible we have a more basic problem that we've never, if you've never felt any animosity from anybody in the world at all over your faith, um, we have to also consider the possibility that we're not really standing out very much. Let's be real. If it's never a problem at all, everything's just wonderful, passages like 2 Timothy 3 maybe should jar us a bit, myself included. All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All. And persecution takes a lot of forms. It can be subtle, it can be implicit, it can be explicit, it can be you know, horrendously physical. It can, there's all kinds of persecution, micro, macro, and so on. Um, but my basic point is there is a fundamental opposition from the world against God's people because of the fact, or to the extent that they are allied with Jesus. They don't always look that much like Jesus, even though they claim his name, let's be real. And so then things might be different. But to the extent that we are like Christ, we can expect the world, the world to regard us the way it regarded Jesus Christ. That's what he says here in his prayer. Um, he says in John 15, 18, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Like you're following the Christ. You wear the name of the Christ whom the world hated. Why is that? Jesus and his followers are simply not of the world. It does not recognize, the world does not recognize us as one of its own. That's, that's the language he uses here in John 15 and verse 19. If you were, he says to his disciples, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Now that, you know, we could have to, maybe we need to unpack that more. We're not going to do that now. I don't really know the reason, but it, it's, it's, it suggests that the world sees us as peculiar or as different or something other. And because of that fact alone, um, 1 John 3, 1, Jesus says, the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Maybe it's just that the world can't get its brain around us. It's too weird the way we act. Our ethics are different. Our morals are different. Our basic guiding narrative that we believe, our worldview is so different. Uh, or maybe it sees us as a threat. I, I don't know. But we're not of the world. It doesn't know us, just like it didn't know Jesus. And so we can expect some opposition, some hostility even at times. We need to know, we need to appreciate, we need to accept that being a disciple means we will not ever ultimately just fit in. Like there's the world doing its thing, spinning off the rails on a trajectory away from God and his idea for how he created the world. We're not going to fit in that world exactly. That's why Peter says things like you're a peculiar people. However palatable we try to make God's word to the world, and we should try to make it palatable. However agreeable, how much, however much we try to, to translate it, and however diplomatic we try to be, you know, as we give an answer to those who ask us with gentleness, as 1 Peter also says, there's still going to be some suspicion, some confusion, some disapproval, or worse, in some cases historically. And I think, in a sense, that's the way it's designed. Not, not, not that God wants us to be at odds. He doesn't want the world to be at odds. It is, though. And we're sent out with, as different people, with a different makeup, with a different mission, a different vision. Jesus says, uh, through Paul's pen in Philippians 2.15, 
that we're to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. When a light comes into a dark room, picture a cave. There's no light, right? Almost, you can't see your hand in front of your face. You flick on your little spelunking lamp that you wear on the band on your head, man, it's, 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 it shines. If the light doesn't look any different from the darkness, then it's not a light. So by definition, if we're shining as lights in the world, we're going to be different from the world. And that's by design. And so here's the upshot of this point, and then we'll move on to our second one. The upshot is, the takeaway from this point is that our mission into the world, which we've been talking about now for the last two weeks, we are sent into the world. Here's what it cannot mean. Here's what it must not mean. It does not mean becoming the world. 1 Peter 1, Peter says, But as he who called you is holy, you also must be holy, set apart, separate in all your conduct. Since it is written, this is from Leviticus 19, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, he says back there, am holy. So we must not, in the name of taking the gospel to people where they are, which was last week's lesson, we must not denature that gospel, right? They got something, but they got the wrong thing. It's not any help. In the name of building bridges, if we want to use that metaphor, we can't destroy the whole reason for their crossing the bridge in the first place. There's nothing on the other side that's any different. So what that you're relevant? We've made it relevant. We've gone into the world, yeah, with a counterfeit gospel. You've just given them more darkness. It's a different shade of darkness. Right? They cross the bridge to a bank that's no different than the bank they were on. That's not what we're to do. But many Christians have swung to the other extreme. Adopting a kind of distortion of holiness. A distorted version of piety. And that brings up our next point. As a sent people... We cannot relate to the world as chameleons, just blending in and becoming the world, but neither can we relate to the world as combatants. Combatants. This would be coming from the view that our fundamental role in the world is to be oppositional. You know how people will do this when they're talking about somebody who has no backbone and they don't have any kind of uh, real convictions. They'll, they'll do this little motion like, just lick your finger and hold it in the air. Whichever way the wind's blowing, that's the way this politician's going to go or this whoever's going to go. That's the chameleon version. Let me tell you about an equal and opposite version of that. You go like this, the wind's blowing that way. You don't bother to wonder whether the wind's a good wind. You just go, well, then I'm going this way. It's kind of the curmudgeonly view of what our calling is. It comes from a, a mentality that I'm going, to use, I'm going to use a military metaphor, that we're at war with the world. That the fundamental expression of the Christian's relationship to the world, into which they're being sent, is war. Conflict. And let me just caveat this. We are at war with worldliness. 100%. Military metaphors used all that. We sung some of them a minute ago. But the Bible teaches, Jesus and the Apostle Paul don't teach us that we, we just want to drop a bomb on the world. We're at war with worldliness, with the deformation of God's world. 
and of its human stewards. That sin brought into that world. That's what we're at war with. Not the sinner, but the sin. Not the world, but the sin-deformed world, the sin-sick world. Not the world per se. And so it's it's at best a half-truth when Christians believe that their very calling is merely to condemn the world, to hate the world. At best, that's a half-truth. I don't even think it's a half-truth. It's a distortion of half a truth. But you know what they say about half-truths. They're false, (laughs) right? I mean, think about it. This is God's world, after all. And he certainly didn't respond to its ungodliness with hatred or by declaring war on it. Instead, here's what we read. John 3. You ever heard this verse? God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish. God loved the world. How much? To sacrifice His only Son so that the world wouldn't perish but have eternal life. And notice verse verse 17. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world. If it's not the role of the Son of God who's sending into the world is our model for how we're sent into the world. If it was not his role to condemn the world, then we better be very wary of a mentality about our relationship with the world that is just nets out at militarism, opposition, conflict, war. War with what? Worldliness or the world? God loved the world. He sent his son into the world And Father, as you have sent me into the world, so send I them into the world. So this warfare notion is actually a distortion of the way we should look at our relationship with the world. That's something we should be very leery of. Now let me get, get more concrete here. There's two ways, basically, that this militaristic hatred of the world can be manifested. One is by direct attack. And one is by retreat. We use two military metaphors there. Full frontal attack and then pulling away. Two military maneuvers. Both of which reveal, in my view, an unbiblical thinking about the relationship of God's people with the world God made. Let's take those in turn. First of all, direct attack. God's people have always, since the end of the, the, the writing of the New Testament, you know, end of the first century, early second century, God's people have always struggled to maintain, or sorry, to, re, to remain, remain free of this distortion. It's always been out there, something for the devil to offer up that's kind of a, a, a counterfeit, a close counterfeit, because it feels conservative. It feels righteous. It feels like piety, right? So remember the time when early on in Jesus' ministry, they're, they're going through the land there, and, and Jesus wanted to go into Samaria, and he's got his disciples with him. This isn't the John 4 time when he did go into Samaria. This is uh, a different time. John 9, 52-54, he sends messengers ahead of him, and they enter a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for Jesus to enter. Verse 53, but the people, the Samaritan people, did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Notice the response of the faithful disciples of Jesus. Verse 54, when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Boy, that's good news. The gospel? No, I'm I'm being sarcastic. 
Jesus turned and rebuked them. That mentality, so frustrated with the world, I'm so tired of these liberals, these godless people who are taking our culture down and teaching our kids this and all this. If we're not careful, our next move is something like this. Let's just nuke them. Maybe not literally, let's rhetorically nuke them. Let's social media nuke them. There's a lot of ways to nuke people that don't look like Jesus going into the world. They don't look like God's so loving the world that he gives his son for it. You know, there's an irony in this too. To hate one's opponents, it turns out, is just another form of imitating the world. Isn't it? What's more worldly than hatred? What's more worldly than conflict? So actually, if I adopt this warfare mentality, that's just another way of playing the chameleon. Because that's, that's pretty much, you turn on the evening news, that's what everybody's doing. And they've been doing that for 2,000 years. You just otherize somebody and, you know, reduce them to cliches and slogans and sound bites and there's very little empathy. They're just an evil other that is faceless and nameless. They've been dehumanized. They're really not part of the world. They're only worthy of fire from heaven. But Jesus sent something else from heaven, didn't he? He sent his son. And the only fire he sent was the, the fire of the Holy Spirit, the tongues that came when God came to be with humanity. The other way that this militaristic hatred can be manifested is not just in direct attack, but in retreat. Hatred for the world by God's people has often led religious folks to turn to a kind of isolationism. I think of the book of Jonah, God's prophet who <clears throat> refuses to go to Nineveh because they're so evil, they're pagans. They're a rising empire that's threatening people around the world, in fact, maybe threatening Israel. And remember how reluctant Jonah is? He runs the other way. Nineveh's off to the east and north, and he runs west toward Tarshish, Spain. Ends up finally in Nineveh after a little adventure in the belly of an aquatic beast. But he goes there under duress, and the whole book ends with Jonah complaining about how gracious God is to these bad people. That difference between the way God looks at his broken world and the way his people look at it has been going on since the beginning of time. That's one of the biggest temptations for godly people is to distort godliness to a kind of oppositional, warlike mentality toward the very people who need them. So retreat, isolationism separating can be another form of warfare. It's just like in a fight between two people. Do you know there's different personalities? Two people get in an argument, one of them is the person who punches through the hole through the sheetrock. The other one's the one who goes cold and becomes a stone wall. They're both anger. It's just two different temperaments. They withdraw and don't talk. Right? But there's a lot of ways to, to manifest this sort of warlike mentality. And I want to, again, caveat this. It is true that holiness involves a kind of separation. But we mustn't confuse a separation of geography, or even cultural geography, if I can use that term, with a separation of values. That's the separation that holiness requires. We have a different and separate morality, a different and separate ethics, a different and separate worldview. And of course, Christians who take this 
attack of withdrawing tell themselves it's about maintaining purity. But who was purer than Jesus? Hmm? Anybody know anybody who was purer than the Son of God? The Lamb of God who taketh away the sins of the world? And he came into this world, and he came into it with love. No, we're not to be chameleons mimicking the world, nor combatants hating the world. Jesus says in verse 15 of John 17, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I do not ask that. Father, I'm not asking you to take them, make them leave the world. You sent me into the world, and, and I'm sending them into the world. So neither this chameleon approach nor the combative approach is the right approach. Neither of those imitates Jesus. Let me suggest to you that we're sent as, I hate the way this word sounds to the ear, but I looked it up and it actually it reminds me of when George Bush said, I'm the decider. So I'm a curer. I, it's something about that word sounds funky to me, but it's an actual word. I looked it up. I was going to use healer, but that doesn't have alliteration. Yeah, you got to have the C. Plus, it sounds like we're, we're kind of the healers, which, right, anyway, here's what we're going with, curer. And what I'm talking about here is we're sealing, we're, we're, we're rather seeking to heal a sin-sick world with the remedy of the gospel. So the, meta, the guiding metaphor isn't militarism, it isn't war or conflict, it's sickness and healing. Man, that makes all the difference. I want you to imagine for a minute a doctor who instead of gently attending to the needs of the hospitalized, he just shows up at the hospital parking lot every morning with a megaphone or a PA system and loudly berates the sick for being sick. That's his job. Then he goes home at night and comes back every day. <laughs> you nasty scumbag sick people. What if a doctor did that? Instead, physicians heal, uh, uh, seek to heal the sickness. And what was Jesus called? The great physician, the ultimate physician, the ultimate and true healer, curer. And of course, Jesus despised sin. And physicians don't condone sickness, do they, Daniel? You're like, yeah, let's find new ways to get people sick. <laughs> they work to eradicate it to mitigate its impact. Sickness is the enemy. Disease is the enemy. And it was the enemy of Jesus. But Jesus did, he, he did go among the sick. He did touch the sick. He sought to heal the sick. And let me suggest to you that Jesus, not the world itself, is our model for relating to the world. I think a lot of times we get our model for how to relate to the world from the world. The world's got all kinds of people that's otherized, all kinds of bad groups. Everybody's got a bad, a bad guy, a nemesis, or 20. And so we kind of imitate the world and the way it responds to the bad guy. Instead of Jesus providing our model for how we should relate to the world, to its sinners, to its haters, to its enemies. We are, as Jesus puts it, in the world, not of the world. So, look at verse 15. There's something, there's a, there's a, something we've got to hold in tension here, or 
a kind of twin commitment we've got to commit ourselves to. Be faithfully sent as Jesus was sent into this world. First of all, he says, I don't ask that you take them out of the world. That's not the answer. Withdrawing, isolating yourself in some subcultural bubble or casting bombs, you know, with your Facebook posts or on news, news soundbite or whatever it is. No, you're going to go into the world, actually. You're going to be among the people who have the problem. Because guess what? You're one of them. We all are. As you sent me into that world, that sin-sick world, so I'm sending them. So we've got to be people who are in the world. That's what we talked about last time. But isn't it also the case that he's saying we are not of the world? As you sent me into the world, so I've sent them into the world, but they are not of the world. All right. So what we're being called to maintain is what I'm going to call a holy equilibrium. Started to say balance. I don't really like the word balance because balance sounds like you're splitting the difference. No, we need to be 100% not of the world. So I'm going to be kind of worldly. You've got to balance it. It's not a balance concept. It's an equilibrium. It's a twin commitment. So we're to be completely in the world. Jesus, was Jesus partly flesh? The Word became sort of flesh and dwelt among us. No, that's not what we, remember, we memorized. In fact, that's the, one of the Gnostic heresies. He didn't really become flesh. No, he became fully a human being. He could die. He was vulnerable. He could cry. He could sweat drops of blood. He could have compassion on people lost like sheep. And yet he was 100% not of this world. And that's, that's it. We've got to be all the way in the world, really, truly engaged, if we're going to be sent like Jesus, but all the way not of the world. And neither of these is negotiable. Neither of these is a 50% or 99%. We're shooting for all the way on both of these. That's the holy equilibrium we've got to maintain. And I want to suggest to you that anything less than that is not actually holy. If we forget that we're sent into the world, we're not being holy. At least not like Jesus was, because he went into the world. If, on the other hand, we totally blend into the world, we're not being holy either. Think about a cure. If we're curers, a cure to do any good must go into the wound. It's got to make contact with the disease, with the sickness. You can have the best cure in the world. If it's bunkered away in some pharmaceutical warehouse 5,000 miles away, no healing's going to occur. But neither can a cure work if it's lost all of its curative essence. It's healing gospel essence. And my question is, has American Christianity, has our Christianity so conflated the gospel with a swath of American culture that it's draining the gospel of its essence? And that's what people are getting from a lot of Christians these days. The other day I was listening to a podcast. Beeson Divinity School down in Birmingham is where Matt Harbour got his master's. I sometimes listen to their podcast, the, the, the podcaster, it's a guy named Timothy George, and he had this, uh, this French woman on as a guest who is a French Baptist theologian. Now just, I don't know how much you know about France. French Baptist? That, that is an oxymoron. She said, he asked her, what, tell us about the religious landscape in France. Well, of course, historically Catholic. Now, like, you know, 85% don't believe in God or agnostic or something like that, real high or nominal Catholic. doesn't mean much. It's almost like saying I'm French. All right? 
Evangelicals in France are less than one per, and by evangelical I just mean theologically conservative people who take the Bible as the word of God. Less than one percent in this nation that John Calvin came from. Pretty amazing. All right. Um, so he's interviewing this woman. Her name's Catherine Duval Pujol. And he goes through all these questions. She's, oh, she's work, she works as a translator on a new French edition of the Bible. Very, very theologically conservative and devout. You could just tell uh, from, from the podcast. He asks her, that at the very end, he goes, okay, I have a hard question for you. And the hard question is, what would you say to American evangelicals today as you watch from across the Atlantic? Her response one has the feel that American evangelicalism looks more like a culture than a faith. It looks more to people elsewhere, Christians elsewhere, like a culture than it does a faith. And she said they need to be careful because this could lead to their being not very faithful to the actual gospel anymore, and they, and they don't know it. Now, I want to expound a bit more on a point touched in last week's lesson. I just touched on it, and I think this is a place to expound a bit on it. And in two or three minutes, we, we, we should be finished here. But this point is about our tendency, a lot of Christians' tendency, to conflate a kind of contrarianism with consecration. You know, the word consecrate means to be made holy. We want that. Sometimes, though, it's as if the goal were just to be different from the world for different sake. The world didn't get everything wrong. We believe in individual liberty in America, right? It's, a, it's one of our cardinal virtues in our, in our civic kind of religion. It goes back to the Declaration and the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, individual liberty. Is that an unbiblical idea? I think it's an exceedingly biblical idea. Like, we got that right. People should be free to choose what they believe and not. They shouldn't get their head cut off because they believe something different five seconds later. It, lots of people did that throughout the, the ages, you know? That's really cool. Um, if something gets popular enough in society or in the media or on the web, gets enough airplay, the contrarian spirit feels an urge to trash it. To criticize it. Now I understand mental fatigue can sometimes contribute to that, but I'm talking about something beyond that. It's almost like if something gets enough exposure, we feel some compulsion to automatically go like that. Criticize it. Poo-poo it. Don't even listen to it. Write it off. Just because it's getting exposure. Right? I'll give you an example. This is a, maybe the dumbest illustration I've ever used. But I was at the grocery store the other day in the parking lot, putting my groceries in the car, and I saw one of these on the back of a car. I actually didn't see this. I'll show you the version I saw in a minute. But you've seen these, right? Little stick figure families. So this family's got 18 kids and two pets or something. They're like the foxes, you know. Um, so that's, that's their stick figure family. Anybody ever not seen one of those? Those are everywhere, right? So here's the one I saw the other day. My Conyer, I don't even know what that is, some kind of parrot. Eight-year stick family. All right, there's a million of these. My Dachshund ate your stick family. My Chicken ate your stick family. 
And then this one, the empire doesn't care about your stick figure family. That's, that's the nerd one, yeah. Now this is silly, and I, I honestly kind of think these are funny because, you know, I get, I have the same person, I get mental fatigue. I, you got a family, great, you got stick figure, you know, whatever. Do we all need to know? But what I find even more interesting is the, the, that there's a market for these. Kind of like my pit bull eight-year honor student back in the day. Like, really? I'm using this just as an illustration. Just because something gets a lot of airplay, because the culture's into it, or has noticed it, or something like that, does not make it false. Aren't families good? What's wrong with the stick figure family? Does your conure need to eat it? I mean, come on. First of all, get a normal pet. Hope nobody has a conure here. I don't even know if I'm saying that word right, but. Um, and I, here's, the, here's what I'm illustrating. The, the problem is that Christians sometimes respond this way to social movements or to cultural developments that are actually quite good. They actually are bringing us closer to the world God intended. But because somebody did it out there, here comes this oppositional defiant disorder that sometimes masks itself as theological sanctity. When the society starts talking more about social justice, you ever read the prophets? They are chock full of social justice. It, it wasn't okay for people to not have basic civil rights for a hundred years after being enslaved just because that's the way it was. That wasn't okay biblically. It wasn't okay to have you know, churches segregated by race. From what I read, there's neither bond nor free, male or female. You could add black, white, Latino, but you were all one in Christ Jesus. That was never right. And we had a giant blind, not, not we, America collectively, had a giant blind spot to that. Much of the culture, that, that was the culture. So somebody starts saying, hey, we need to change that. Guess who was among the ringleaders of opposing it? Conservative evangelical Christians. Historically, I'm just speaking the facts. Yeah, I'm glad that's happening. Who cares where it came from? Give God the glory. Somebody starts talking about creation care, and everybody goes, oh, man, all that stuff. Well, God, it sounds like he liked creation. We were made stewards of it in Genesis 1, 27, 28. Is that bad? Don't feel some sort of compulsion to oppose things just because they came from some group you don't know about. Was Scripture a sola, the Bible only, which was the main model of the Protestant Reformation? Was that a bad idea in the 1500s when it took off, it became viral because of the Protestant Reformation and the printing press? Are you glad or not glad that the Bible only became a thing people thought about and 50,000 people now have the Bible in their own language? I can picture a lot of Christians going, well, we didn't figure that out, so it's bad probably. Being holy does not mean being a curmudgeon. Okay? When anti-slavery got a lot of press in the 1850s and selling ba people's babies from their breasts was opposed in the media like crazy in the 1850s. Wonderful idea. Who cares where it came from? That's, that's biblical. So just because something gets a lot of press doesn't mean we need to get our backs up. What do you make of Jesus' words after all? Luke 9, 49, John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. 
We tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Jesus said, do not stop him. For the one who is not against you, listen, that's kind of backwards from what we typically think. The one who's not against you is actually for you. I'll take it. It's all my world. Anything good in the world ultimately comes from God. He's the source of every, not most, every good and perfect gift. Even if people don't believe in him. Derivatively, all good comes from him. Don't oppose it. Be thankful for it. Let me sum this up with a quote from a, a, a theologian. I think he's probably German, at least German background. Gerhard Lofink. He describes the church as a contrast society. I came across this in one of the books that Jake recommended to me on mission. In other words, by calling the church a contrast society, he's basically saying that we are an alternative community through which God is showing the hurting world what the gospel can do. We'll close with this quote. He says this, The idea of church as a contrast society does not mean contradiction of the rest of the society for the sake of contradiction. We can't do that because they're doing that. Right? They go through the front door, so we're going to start going through the back door. Still less does the church's contrast society mean despising the rest of society due to elitist thought. The only thing meant, he says, the only thing I mean by this is contrast on behalf of others and for the sake of others. It is necessary that the church not become the world, that it retain its own countenance. If the church loses its own contours, if it lets its light be extinguished and its salt become tasteless, then it no longer can transform the rest of society. Neither missionary activity nor social engagement, no matter how strenuous, helps anyone. If we denature ourselves and, and start to look not like the God, the Christ, who sent us into the world just as he was sent. Appreciate your attention for next time. Now, next week we're going to be gone and Greg Beard is going to be preaching. I'm sure he needs to remind him of that maybe. Um, he, he, I'm sure he wrote it down, but um, we talked about three or four weeks ago. But the week after that, when I come back and we, we kind of finish this up, what we're going to do is, is look at these questions just to kind of, this is my cliffhanger. I know these are riveting. So, so for next time, how can we be, how can we both be truly in the world and also avoid becoming like the world. How do we do that? Talked about the importance of it. How do you do that? How do you, that's a thin line to tread sometimes. Another way of putting that is by what means can we distinguish legitimate holiness from illegitimate hostility? Okay? That's what we're going to try to answer or talk about a couple weeks from now. Thanks a lot for your attention. Hope this has been helpful in some way. We're going to sing a song in just a second. If there's someone here who needs... Uh, prayers or wants to become a christian um, we have we can we can baptize people in the christ for sins we have a baptistry back here maybe you just want to talk about something that's in the word of god uh, none of us here has all the answers but we believe they're in here so we'd be happy to sit down and investigate the word of god with you let us know your needs by coming to one of these interior chairs while we together stand and sing